I know what it's like to work in B2B and wear a lot of hats. One minute you're optimizing your inbound funnel, the next you're working on a demand gen program, all while trying to keep on top of all the opportunities landing in your inbox. That's why I'm a big fan of Chili Piper and their concierge tool. It's built specifically for marketers like you who are strapped for time and under pressure to deliver results. It uses intelligent rules that auto-qualify and route inbound inquiries from your website to the right salesperson in your organization. And this means that you capture more than the 60% of leads that never convert to a meeting because companies just don't react quickly enough. No leaky funnel, more leads, more meetings, more pipeline. What's not to love? Start turning leads into meetings today with Chili Piper. Visit chilipiper.com forward slash B2B better to learn more. Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the only podcast focused on helping early stage marketing teams do better than boring work. My name is Jason Bradwell and every week I sit down with whip smart marketing leaders to talk about what it takes to build a modern day strategy that delivers actual business results, not vanity metrics. Each episode is packed to the rafters with actionable insights and takeaways that you can put into practice today. Let me help you be better than boring. Here we go. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Lisa Riley, Senior Vice President and Head of Global Events at Forrester. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm great. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for inviting me to join you today. It's such a pleasure. Um, We were introduced through uh, a former guest of mine, Katie, who came on a couple of weeks ago to talk about uh, employee advocacy, who Katie was also introduced to me by a former colleague of both of yours, Claire Kennedy, who also came onto the podcast earlier this year to talk about social media engagement. So uh, tell me a little bit about your your work with them um, at Forrester and and how you came to work for, for the company and what you do for the company now. Perfect. I mean, first off, I mean, both Claire and Katie, absolute rock stars. Um, I used to work with Katie and I still work with Claire. We all work together at Serious Decisions. Our company was acquired by Forrester. So we all work together then. And the way that I have partnered and collaborated, collaborated with them is that since I run events for Forrester, I would partner really closely with Claire, who is our manager of social media. So clearly we aligned and you know, strategize on how to best place and market and promote uh, events in social media platforms. And I would do the same with Katie. So we really were a very close-lit aligned team in order to help create the best platforms and the best messages for events through the various social uh, media channels. Got it. Got it. And events obviously have been a marketing channel that have perhaps been the most affected uh, over the course of the pandemic. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about how has the pandemic affected events. You know, we've we've been living it long enough, I think, to all have a pretty good idea on what's happened, Um, namely being this huge transition and shift into running virtual events. Um, I was looking at the Forrester website uh, uh, just before we jumped on, and I can see that that, that uh, your company's running a number of uh, big-ticket virtual events over the coming months. What do you think attendees are looking for from that virtual experience in 2021 and beyond? And I think, you know, our attendees, our majority of our clients are Forrester. So the best part of that is we know who is going to show up at our events. Although we charge and we monetize for events, we know who our clients are. We know, you know what their roles are and what their personas are. And so for us, first and foremost, the fact that they're attending our Forrester events, we know they're coming for the content. I know there's a lot of discussion around production value, all the excitement and potentially around, you know, uh, you know, VR, AR, 
for us, besides all those great experience, they come to us for content because they utilize Forrester to help them be successful in their roles. So the number one objective from the start of you know, virtual events was always been making sure that we deliver exceptional content to the customers that we serve. And that hasn't changed, nor will that ever change for as long as virtual events are around, which I think they'll be around for a long time. We stay true to what our events value proposition is. It is providing the very best content for the customers that we serve. Mm. Forrester is obviously finding it's, it finds itself in a fortunate position in that it is, you know, for one of a better phrase, a, a content production powerhouse. You know, there's a bunch of research being conducted within the organization and then published across a number of different channels to to your audience. Why do you think um, what makes an event special? Like, why would you why would you share content via an event rather than via a white paper or research report, what would one of your attendees be getting from that kind of event experience over something else? I think that's a great question. And when I had these conversations with my colleagues, including Claire and our other partners in marketing and product and sales, you know, it is that question of what makes an event special. For a couple things, one, the way that we create our events is, is specific around a topic, which is really specific around a role. For an example, for an event where we are focusing on B2B for marketer sales and products, what makes that special is that we are literally a anchor for bringing CMOs, CSOs, heads of product into an instance, whether it's two days, three days, four days, not only are they buying, so not only buying our research products, they're actually showing up with their time, they're showing up with their money. And what that means is that is a huge buying signal so they're spending all this time to learn from us, us being our expert analysts in this environment of virtual event. And the other point is they're just not showing up and then logging off. They're staying on our platforms at our events for hours and hours of time. And that's showing their interest. It's showing us their buying proudness. But overall, for a, t- for a total opportunity perspective, we know that event attendees convert and retain much higher than many other marketing initiatives that we actually offer today. So it's a really big powerhouse of bringing communities together, but also from a leads perspective, we have huge conversion and retention rates. What are some of the kind of best practice um, uh, uh, mechanisms in which to kind of attract attendees to your events i mean you mentioned the fact that a lot of the people who are coming to your to your virtual events are existing customers are you simply just sending out an email blast saying hey you know we've got this great event on b2b marketing and sales you should come or are you what are the kind of campaigns look like when it comes to promoting that event i think you know that's you know i think you know i'm sure what katie and claire have talked about that in of itself has clearly matured right the campaigns of yesteryears of in-person events, you know, no longer apply, right? Because mm-hmm. of virtual events, and it's not just a virtual event, it's the environment that we all find ourselves in today requires a new way of thinking. The new way of thinking, we have to think about virtual events, what that means, how they show up, how long they show up, the value, duration, all of that. In the same way is our campaigns. And we talk about omnichannel, and again, this is where I think the fact that you've spoken to Katie and Claire, they probably talked about this. The touches that we do are very different. We definitely use much more social media in our activities 
We know that emails, yeah, the click-throughs are important, but we know that there's a longer tail touch point. We also know that there are points within the campaigns where they are consuming our content, whether it is a podcast about a certain topic in a certain area, that there is something that we do, which Claire does fantastically in a lot of her social media activities that also brings them in. So we're seeing multiple touch points, particularly on different mediums and scales versus what we do. It's much, much more than email. And I think any organization right now, if they rely on email, they're likely not being as successful as they can be. It's much more open. It's much more omnichannel for sure. You know, what, what Claire came on to speak about at length, and we keep referencing these episodes so much, I will drop the links to those episodes in the description yeah. of this of this episode for anyone who's interested in listening to them. You know, Claire has spent a lot of time, to my understanding, building out an internal kind of employee advocacy program and equipping your uh, colleagues to go out there and uh, and and effectively, you know, sell Forrester services and events and and what have you. And that's something I want to go on to a little bit more in the context of the events that you're running in, in just a moment. But before we do that, for someone who's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, okay, I need to get onto the virtual event bandwagon. I need to start running these because I'm I'm convinced that they are good lead gen uh, mechanisms. How how would you advise them on competing with all the noise that there is out there? How can they deliver something that cuts through all the other virtual events that are being put on perhaps by their competitors and contemporaries and stand out to attract attendees? That's a great question. And there is a lot of noise. There was a lot of noise at the beginning when virtual events, you know, started to show up again about what a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, for us and where I have seen the best events show up and what I mean, the best events show up, being meaningful to the audience that you serve or the audiences that you want to serve. It's all about killer content. And I know that sounds, you know, so trite and just so obvious, but really it is around content because there are so many events. There are so many ways to consume content across the board. The one piece that your event has to do, it has to deliver valuable content. It could have great production value, but right now, production value doesn't really matter. What it matters is for the audiences that you serve or the audiences you want to serve, you're reaching them with content that's going to help them become better in their role today, become better in their role tomorrow, and how it makes them be more successful. Whether success is driving increased revenue, which seems to be in most roles across the board, we either are directly being measured on driving increased revenue and or indirectly impacting the increase of revenue, and sometimes it's both top line revenue or bottom line uh, profits, that all matters. And for us, again, from my experience running virtual events now for, I can't believe it, it's gonna be two years, which is crazy, (laughs) but it is, It's it's all about content. The one place that we always show up and the metrics that you know, we utilize to just continue to validate, is that the right strategy? It continues to show up. We keep people on the platform. We keep people in the sessions because they're watching the content that is going to help them. That's right for them in their roles. I'm curious, how do you define the content that you you do put on at these events? Um, I remember seeing 
a couple of years ago, I think it was now, maybe right at the start of the pandemic, actually, uh, G2, the software uh, comparison mm-hmm. site, they put on a conference um, called like the G2 Summit or something where they mm-hmm. were kind of sourcing in advance of the event the the topics of interest that their, their audience may want to hear um, G2 curate, um, which I thought was a really interesting way, instead of just saying, here's the agenda, come yeah. and watch they were saying well what do you want the agenda to be and then we will go out and we will find speakers to speak on those topics um what kind of other mechanisms do you do you employ at forester to, to find to define the the kind of subject matter that you're going to cover at these events sure and i think and i you know i saw that and i thought they were really smart for doing that because a lot of companies don't do that or at least don't do that as obviously as g2 did for us we do things similarly one we have you know we have analysts so we work with our research chairs who are constantly evaluating because again, our bread of what we serve is the right content to our clients. So we're always having research and doing qualitative, quantitative analysis on the back end, making sure that Forrester's research is right. On event level, where we actually complement that as ensuring that we have the right content in the event level, because an event hits at a certain point in time. You know, it's our, our content isn't being served up for the entire year, although the accents, the access of our events content is about 90 days, but we need to make sure it's right on target for the moment that we serve and we deliver that content. And for us, we do the same things. We do qualitative, quantitative analysis. We actually drive those surveys and you know, we're actually heading into our three pre-event surveys right now for some of our events coming up in the second half to do exactly what you talked about. It's making sure that we're hitting the right pulse point. And for us in the environment that we're serving, the pulse point has shifted, particularly for the C-level roles that we hit, whether it's a CMO, CIO, CDO, that has changed a lot given the factors that have all impacted all of us in our roles, particularly as marketers. So we always are making sure that we're qualifying and quantifying because ultimately we we need to make sure it's not just hitting the right content. It's also the magnitude of how much we double down on say, okay, we're going to talk about a marketing strategy. Great. That's a great keynote. But what does that mean in terms of for a marketer, whether you're covering on the demand side, campaign side, how do we actually detail out and what type of sessions are the fast follow to those big tent keynotes? So we take a lot of time, and this is part of our overall agenda development, is actually doing exactly that, making sure that we're doing qualitative, qualitative analysis consistently to make sure we get those sessions right. Because I can tell you, I know when our sessions aren't right, when either we don't have the attendance numbers where we expected them to be, or those are showing up in really low value scores. Because at the end of the event, we're always looking at value scores. We have about 20 KPIs that we tracked, some net new ones that we just added in the virtual environment. But the core of value all focuses around value of content, value of sessions, and value of topics. So we know if we've hit the mark right and or if moving forward, we have to reevaluate and make sure that we get that topic spot on for that audience. So in my day job, I'm the, the budget holder um, for, uh, for for deciding what events we choose to attend, uh, or rather our executives choose well, yep. you know, what, 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 what events we're sending our executives to. Um, and some of the feedback that I've gotten from executives over the last 18 months that they've been, you know, sitting at virtual events is, you know, 
one, we find it very difficult to just, you know, sit in front of our computer screens for an entire day and watch, um, yep. uh, you know, an agenda of content. You know, we get fatigued, Zoom fatigue, you know, we'll feel it every day. Yeah. And two, you know, we're really missing that kind of in-person networking piece, um, which is, you know, a large part of why historically I have sponsored and attended these big events is because, yeah. you know, whilst I'm interested in the content, I also want to create yeah. those opportunities, those serendipitous opportunities where you run into a CEO of a potential yeah. client over a stale mini muffin and a tepid warm <laughs> cup of coffee. Um, oh, how we miss those cold cups of coffee. <laughs> oh, so, so good. So good. So um, good. So, you know, what would be your kind of argument or advice, I guess, for an event organizer to try and fix those issues you know how can they help people how can you help people uh avoid zoom fatigue and what is the substitute for in-person networking sure so those are i'll hit those two i'll hit those two different ways so the fatigue piece the fatigue piece is real Mm -hmm. even though i run a lot of events fatigue is real It's, it's real to me it's real to you it is what it just it's it's honesty that's what it is as we built out our event strategy, you know, starting last year, what, in March of 2020, when we started to come into this, early on, early on, I knew just based upon the type of, at that time, I'll call it webinars that I was attending in just some of the other type of, you know, digital events that I would attend, say TEDx. I, I knew enough that 40 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minute sessions wasn't really going to be a great transition into the virtual space. So we knew that immediately. So we first, from a fatigue perspective, adapted two things out of the gate. One, we knew we're not, we were not going to run nine to five. One, because we were going to have difficulty of attracting individuals from multi-time zones, right? You can't have a 9 a.m. start East Coast and expect the West Coast to wake up at 6 a.m. That's not going to happen. The second piece is, like I said, for the sessions, what was really great and maybe interesting and probably not so much now that I look back, but just going with your question, (laughs) 45 minutes in-person session was not going to translate in the virtual environment, even in the early days, because we know, and I'm sure it's happening to you now, um, I could hear the pings coming up on, you know, on, you know, on my emails. There is also those distractions. So for us, the way we try our best to cut through fatigue is one, we ended up by one, shortening the duration of the day. Secondly, shortening the duration of our sessions. So bringing those down to 20 minutes. So in some cases, some of our sessions were the third of, of the length of what we were running in person. Mm-hmm. That was brilliant. And then finally, making sure that outside of the duration in those sessions, that there were moments that we had purposeful breaks in there, because just like I hear now, people are going to check on their emails. They need to get up, stand up out of their chairs, because that's just, that just natural reality. The final piece is that our content was always going to be on demand, because the reality for the type of events that Forrester runs we don't run one track events. We run multi-track events. Our biggest event that we run is B2B Summit. We had 18 tracks running simultaneously, which means it is impossible for an individual to attend 
all 18 tracks at the same time. I mean, it was difficult in person. It's still, it's still difficult virtually. The upside is if there's fatigue, we do have on demand. And what we are seeing and what we have particularly seen over the past six months of running events is that the post-event viewing of our content has started to increase. So we're seeing more of our attendees on the platform for a longer amount of time, but we're also seeing post-event viewing also increasing. And that's really great for us because one, we know we've got the right sweet spot, the duration, like I tell by my averages, because we watch average duration. Two, we look at average session length, which is great. But I could also see post-event how many of our attendees are watching those sessions and those are increasing as well, which is fantastic. The second piece you before asked we, about- Lisa, sorry, oh, sorry before, go we, on. Before, before we jump into that, because you, you've said so much great stuff there and my mind's, my mind's spinning with, with other questions, <laughs> but I do want you to come back to the, uh, the in-person networking piece because I think that's really important. But I'm just curious, does, does Forrester take sponsors for its events? Yes, so our model, and I probably should have been clear about this at the beginning. So. Our model is we drive attendees and we also drive sponsors. So we do have we do have a virtual which we call village. We have sponsorship villages where sponsors do present their actual products and services to our attendees, which is part of the greater ecosystem that we offer. Yeah, and I'm curious, has the pandemic? Because because I, again, I sit on the other side of the table as being yep. the, the, the budget holder of some you know of a company that has sponsored historically these events and. Um, just just being kind of candid, really, you know, when the sponsorship agreements or renewals came around again, you know, after the pandemic had begun and we could see that, you know, it was going to be a while before the in-person events returned. Um, my expectation from what those events could deliver had changed, you know, because, again, those serendipitous moments of, of meeting people, you know, uh, in, 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 in a conference hall or something like that. Um, were important and now we weren't having those anymore so i wanted to see more how can you leverage the digital assets that you're creating with us you know speaking at a virtual event um how can we you know put those behind a lead gen wall and create some sort of yeah. mechanism in which you know that data is being fed to us as a sponsor or a brand um you know for a set period of time have you experienced that as well on the other side of the table you know uh, sponsors coming to you and saying well you know we need to look at our relationship and how we commercialize that Yep. So I think and that's a great question. The biggest change that we have seen, we'll just use year over year, right? 2020 to 2021, because those are the two different years of virtual events. For us, the biggest change, it hasn't been the attendee behavior because the strategy for our attendees was really tight at the beginning. The duration we had right, the duration of sessions, all good, on, con- on demand content, great. So we had that lined up. We've kind of you know switched those up. We've been smarter, not starting some events at 11 a.m. Eastern time and move that to 12. But we generally have roughly right, you know, we're in, we're basically in the same type of strategy for delivering attendee value. The sponsorship piece, you are 100% correct. When we started this journey in 2020, there were a lot of conversations that our sales team had that quite frankly were, you know, quite emotional. Mm-hmm. Our sponsors were relying, they were relying so much on the value of in-person events for all the reasons why when a provider goes to in-person events, just like you talked about, it wasn't the serendipitous moment. It also was the true ROI that they were seeing by meeting people, having their salespeople talk to, mm-hmm. whether their clients are really their prospects. So they were very emotional around that because this fills their pipeline. 
So 2020, we all went through, and I really mean all of us, because we truly were in this environment of how do we, how do we make the virtual environment value for products, solution providers, and ultimately their sales teams to be able to generate leads and see the see ROI from virtual events in the same way as they did for in-person. 2020, we tested out, we did have booths, we did have sponsorship show floors, and we did have some successes. We also did learn a lot from that because what we thought, what we believed, what were the core components, what were booth sizes, larger presence, were still and, and are still important. But what was more important was making sure that we aligned content, product expertise in areas that would actually create even higher engagement with, with our attendees. And what I mean by that is that we move more from a sponsorship show floor, because we actually had a sponsorship show floor and we morphed this year. And what I just said was sponsorship villages. And so we were smarter about aligning all of our content around certain topics, certain areas from not just the forester experts, but also from our sponsors. So when the attendees showed up within these villages, they had all content aligned within their certain area of interest. So that has driven much more higher value for our sponsors. They're seeing higher ROI. Will I say that any sponsor will say that they're seeing as much ROI in a virtual environment as they were seeing in person? Probably not, but we're seeing much more higher value because we've been smarter on aligning where that content is, how it shows up at our events. And this is something that we're still testing, but I can say from 2020 to 2021, we learned a lot. We got smarter about that alignment. And I can say year over year, we've increased our sponsorships by nearly 50%. One, because I think there has been a higher need for companies that offer products and services to get out and obviously engage with potential uh, prospects and clients, but also we as Forrester from an events business have been smarter of how we aligned those product and services better with the overall architecture of our event. So instead of being two separate things, it's become one. All the content is basically in one village and we basically curated it to be just be better for our attendees and as well as our sponsors. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, what's what's smart about your approach uh, against some of the other events that that I've seen is that you know you clearly have tried to experiment and do things differently uh, in in response to a very different context in which these events have to operate. You know, I think where I've seen events fall down, and it kind of talks to your broader point, is that they have just simply tried to copy paste what worked in the physical world and put it online and say, you know apples are apples, oranges are oranges, you know, you still got to pay us the same amount of money you've paid us historically for what is, you know, demonstrably uh, a less appealing proposition. And I think that is where I can only speak from personal experience, but has pushed me to then explore, okay, what I'm getting from these third party events, because they are just simply trying to do what they did in person online. I can do that. As a brand, I can do that now, yep. you know, because the tools are available to me, the channels are available to me to go out and build my own audience, run my own webinars and get, you know, in some instances, more leads than I would have got if I had paid for them through this, through, through, through a third party. Um, but it sounds like at Forrester, you, 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 um, 
the team has been very smart in terms of saying, okay, look, it's not going to work if we just do what we did before online. We need to experiment, experiment, find new ways to deliver value. And obviously the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah. And for us, and you asked about, you know, curating content to meet attendees needs, you know, we did step back at the end of 2020. We did a whole evaluation. We did an audit. You know, I spoke to a lot of our sponsors just to gain that same real-time feedback. Okay, we are, you know, we're aligning our content. We're trying to understand and understanding what content is best place. We still need to do that for our sponsors because our events are, like I said, the ecosystem. Our show floors are marketplaces. It's where our attendees come to evaluate and buy products and services. And we need to do a better job of that. And, you know, my ego is not so big that I am going to stick to a plan because I created a plan. I am well okay to say, hey, this thing isn't 100% or is not working as best as it needs to. So we took a step back, which was great that we were able to to take a kind of a beat, reevaluate and relaunch. And I'm so happy we did that because not only did we relaunch a new environment that worked better, we took a step back and we relaunched the actual tiers and the deliverables that we also offered and offer our sponsors, which also hit those touch points that were most necessary now. We took away the things that quite frankly didn't matter. And we stuck to the areas that we knew were going to drive the engagement because the ROI in the virtual events is so much more tighter because like you said, there's no more hallway conversations. Hallway conversations Mm. don't happen. You have to hit particularly audience at a moment and there's a finite amount of time we can do that. So, you know, coming out of our first half uh, 2021 events, we did see huge improvement on the ROI. We're hopefully going to see that as we start launching our second half 2021 (laughs) events in a couple of weeks time. But I'm pretty happy of where we landed. And I know our sponsors looking at the renewal rates that we are seeing seem to be happier as well. So that's good news for us as well. So let's come back to the the question you were about to answer, Uh, which is the in-person networking. I have sat in on many of these virtual events uh, with the chat room on on, on the right-hand side being uh, blasted by a bunch of sales folk um, saying, you know, hey, you can check out our website here. And personally, it just kind of puts me off engaging in that that chat room because I just don't feel like I'm going to get any value. I feel like I'm going to get pitched at. What's kind of your response to that? And and what have Forrester done to kind of substitute that in-person networking? I think, and I chuckle a little bit because the networking or the engagement is a holy grail, I think, for all marketers and event organizers in the virtual space. I think if there's one piece that seems to be the very focus of area of improvement and quite frankly, the biggest desire for getting back to in-person events is that moment in that opportunity for engagement. For us, again, we, we didn't test in 2020 to improve in 2021. We test networking and engagement, different initiatives. We trial different applications literally at every single event because our, because the opportunity to improve is so real time that we're always constantly evaluating it. And we evaluate it from our three events in the first half and we'll continue to do that in the second half. Net-net for us, what we are finding, and we try different things. We tried again, wide scale networking, everybody come, you know, someone put a little chat topic, let's see how that goes. Didn't go very well. <laughs> We've tried other things where, okay, maybe we'll, you know, we'll do a little time after a session 
that didn't go so well. What we are finding is that applications do work actually on platform applications of actually matching individuals by topic, both from an attendee attendee as well as a sponsor attendee is working and better. We also found that facilitated discussions in small scale environments, when I I say small scale, I'm talking 50 individuals or less, Mm -hmm. because what we have found again, through many trials and many errors, is that networking engagement has to exist, or at least for us in, in, you know, in the events that we run in smaller scale um, groups. Why? Because what we find is if you ask anyone, if you ask you and me this, most of us will say, I find value engagement networking because I'm participating, I am an active, I am actively involved. Passive members end up not helping because ultimately with the engagement, you need active and willingness from both parties, from all parties to make that energy and to make that activity work. So what we found is by trialing smaller groups, whether in some cases we have groups of 10, we have groups of 15, we go up to groups of 50, we're finding that managing the size of those facilitated conversations has been improving the level of engagement. And we're seeing the scores, because this is one of the KPIs and scores that we are monitoring for every single event, are approving. Do I think that that network and engagement is some of our top marks? No, but I will say that they are improving. The one piece, and I can't mention the partner, but we did partner with um, a provider that does that does do matching. That was a big breakthrough for us. We had, and we were working with other providers, but we did actually start to work with a new provider that really matched topic from attendee to attendee and sponsor to attendee really well, where we started to see the amount of true one-on-ones happening between attendees. We always do one-on-ones between our analysts and attendees, and that always works well because there's, there's, a, there's a very easy buyer need there. Attendees seek out analysts, they do a one, that's great. But the attendee-attendee piece is much more difficult. So we're seeing improvements. This is still, I think, an area of improvement, innovation, and ramp up. I think for all virtual event organizers and marketers that we're continually going to focus on because the engagement piece, if we think about the whole ecosystem of what event overall value delivers, it's not just the thought leadership and the content, it's that moment of community. And the only way to gain community and really I think the success of a community is providing engagement. So this is still part of, you know, on our path of improvement it is certainly trying to find and continuing to improve the engagement that we actually create on the platform for sure. You've started to kind of answer my next question, which was around kind of KPIs and, and metrics. Obviously yeah. the engagement piece is, is a very important part of that, but just like with all marketing, I'm sure that there are metrics that are good to know, but aren't necessarily determined of the success of the event, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like followers, you shouldn't count your number of followers as whether or not Correct. you're successful on social media. So when you're looking at it through an event lens, you know, what are the kind of metrics that you're looking at to say, yes, this was a success and what would you consider vanity? I mean, the top three that we look for outside of content scores, but the, the top three that we always measure in terms of what I have to report to my CEO, because I report to the CEO and he asks, hey, Lisa, how did the event go? The three KPIs that I always report on is first, the attendance to registration percentage, 
how many attendees actually showed up versus how many registered. The second one was total time on platform. So if we offered, let's just say 100 minutes, what, what percentage of time did we have our attendees on platform? And then third, the amount or duration of time that attendees spent in the sessions. Those are the top three because for us, it's showing one, they showed up. Number two, they're staying with us. And three, they're staying within the sessions that we've intended them to be. Those are the top three that I always, always report to my CEO. And those are the metrics where I immediately know if the event was a success and or we need to have a review. The vanity one is that you hit upon. I still see this, but I know it more so in the early days, you don't see as much now is there are a lot of companies that would, you know, promote their registration numbers. You know, we have 50, 40, 50,000, 60, 100,000, you know, registrations. When you mm -hmm. peel back the oven onion and you speak to the marketers, uh, yeah, we had 100,000 people register, but actually a quarter of those showed up. And mm -hmm. if you actually peel back the onion again, you actually find that another you know, quarter of them stayed on platform for over five minutes. So I think the vanity sake is the registration. It's kind of like, oh, look how many people that could register for the event. When in fact, what most organizers need when it comes to selling products and services, because that's, that's really the point of virtual events, or at least in the B2B area, we're selling products and services. You need people to attend your event. You need people to stay on the platform and you need them to be engaged in the areas that you value highly. And for us at Forrester, it's attending the sessions. That is the number one way that we measure. Are they staying in the sessions? And then the fast follow is, did they rate those sessions with high value? Did they give it a, you know, on a one to five scale? Did they rate it as close to five or fives that we possibly can get? We spent this episode talking a lot about virtual events. I'm very excited that I actually am booked to go to a physical event. Uh, hey! Yeah, I know. Look at me. Hey, I'm uh, I'm flying out to Monaco, which is definitely oh, not the worst place to going out no. to, to go after your uh, after 18 months being working from home. Um, I'm flying out to Monaco in October for for a physical event, um, and it is a very interesting case study for us because this will be the first event really in our industry. A big scale event that has happened since the start of the pandemic. And we are completely in the dark as to whether it is going to be a ghost town or whether it's going to be, you know, packed to the ceiling. Um, very little information coming through from, from our partner in that regard um, at the moment anyway. Um, but I guess it is a sign that things are starting to return to some degree of normalcy. Do you believe that the appetite for in-person events is going to return at, at pre-pandemic levels? Um, or do you think that this whole experience will have put some people off um, from, from attending these kind of mass scale, thousands of attendees um, get togethers? I know based on, we do, I mean, and I hope you would expect this and hope your audience would expect this. So we do a lot of surveying because it's my responsibility to make the decision if our events are running in hybrid partially in person or fully virtual. So we are constantly doing surveys and I can tell you from the attendee sentiment, there is a very big appetite to returning to in-person both on the attendee side, but also from the sponsor side, right? From the companies like yours that actually have products and services that you wanna to deliver to your customers and potential customers. The challenge right now is 
there are government restrictions, there are corporate travel policies restrictions, plus there are other restrictions in place where we can't get to in-person events. Do I believe we will get back to pre-pandemic levels? I do believe that. Do I think that's all gonna happen in 2022? No, I think there is gonna be a ramp up. I also think that the opportunity for us to reach and to grow our audiences because now we have a viable channel in the form of a virtual event that didn't exist, you know, pre-pandemic. Yeah, there was out there running webinars, but we companies were not, and particularly B2B companies, we're running huge, wide-scale, big events in the virtual and the digital environment. So I believe, yes, that in-person events will come back at some stage to pre-pandemic, but the landscape has changed. And you know, for me, as running events business, as being an event marketer, I think it's a huge opportunity for us to reach audiences where we were geographically limited. Because in fact, you know, you're going to Monaco because I suspect you live generally in a location that's close to Monaco. You're probably not living in Connecticut like I do. I can't right now probably fly to Monaco in a way that I would love to join you. <laughs> but so it opens up those geographic borders that in-person events were limited. So for me is I think the opportunity is open. We will get back there, but the way in which we get back there is going to be a ramp up. Plus we have this huge ability to reach audiences that we were not seeing in-person events and we're going to reach them in a new way, which is virtual. What those hybrid events look like, how they play out, that's going to be the next phase, I think, of all the learnings. And I would love to someday, hopefully maybe in six months, a year's time, come back to you and talk about our experiences running hybrid events. We're not there yet, but I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to get there. Well, definitely. I'd love to have you on to talk about that. And um, I'm very conscious of time. Um, there is more that we could discuss, and uh, I'm sure we will discuss again in the future. There has been talk about bringing you, Claire, and Katie back on um, for, uh, for, for, for an episode to talk about the pre, during, and post event planning process and how to make the most out of online and, and physical events. Um, so we'll have to work out a date to get that in the diary. I will drop the link to your LinkedIn profile in the description of this episode for anyone who wants to connect with you. But uh, otherwise, thank you so much for coming on to B2B Better today. And thank you for, uh, for having me on here. I really appreciate that and safe travels. And I look forward to hearing how Monaco goes. For all of us in this events business, we're all rooting for you in that event. I'll try not to make you too jealous. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> thank you. Have a good day. If you're in demand gen, a growth hacker, or a B2B marketer, you need to know about Chili Piper. Its concierge tool allows you to eliminate the waiting period between a prospect filling out a form on your website and getting a meeting with someone in your business. Companies like Twilio, Spotify, and Gong all use Chili Piper to double their inbound conversion rates. And the best thing is that marketers using Chili Piper are better equipped to accurately attribute channel spend thanks to a no-fuss, two-way sync between the platform and their CRM. You know I'm a believer in a frictionless customer journey, and this is the tool that can make it happen. Turn meetings into leads instantly with Chili Piper. Head over to chilipiper.com forward slash B2B better to learn more.
And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe to my podcast, leave a rating, a comment, a review, or just share it on social media. It'll really make my day. Every Monday morning, I send out a newsletter to B2B marketers all around the world on how to do better B2B marketing. You can sign up to that via the link that I'm going to leave in the description of this episode. Or if you need a fix of B2B marketing content goodness right now, you can head over to my website at www.jasonrbradwell.com. See you next week. This episode was sponsored by Chili Piper.